Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, hey, New City Church. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's good to be with you here on July 4th. Uh, before we jump into what we're talking about this morning, let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll open God's Word together. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for time just to come to celebrate. Lord, thank you for families. Thank you for time to be here together in service and to celebrate uh, no matter what age we are, what you're doing. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would open our ears to what you have to say, that we would be aware of your Holy Spirit and what it's doing in this space. Lord, I pray for me that uh, you would fill my words with your words that, and that above all else that you would get glory in this place. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all that you do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, you may have noticed this over time. If you've been at New City for a bit, I've been here about seven months now, and you've probably noticed that I've used a lot of sports references in sermons. And I was thinking about that this week because someone came and told me, you use a lot of sports references in sermons, and that wasn't something that I used to do, and I was trying to figure out why that's the case. And I think it's because as soon as sports came back from COVID, I started drinking heavily from that well because I missed it so much. And what, that's come to a pinnacle now because the Euros are going on. Euro 2020 being played in 2021, but hashtag branding still happens. So Euro 2020. And Euro 2020 is when the best teams in Europe get together and they play against each other for the crown of being the best soccer team in all of Europe. And it's a huge deal. It only occurs every four years, and those teams that win hold on to it tightly. And now over the last bit, there's been articles written about who are the best players in the tournament, what's been going on. And recently I was reading an article, and they said, who's been the star of the tournament? And what they said was own goals have been the star of the tournament. Because there's been 11 own goals in the tournament, far more than there's ever, there have ever been. But some of them have been a lot worse than others. Let me show you what I mean. Goalkeeper, Bernard Moreno was coming in at the far post. That's a giveaway ball. And it hit the angle of post and bar. Dubravka has punched it into his own net at the end of all that. Well, what a remarkable goal. Sarabia's effort crashes into the woodwork. Dubravka tries to turn it over the bar. He doesn't do that. He punches it into the back of his own net. Here it is again. There's the crossfield ball. Shatka passes it straight to Sarabia. Great strike. Now he's just got to push this over the bar. He doesn't get a jump in. That's a terrible effort. Well, it's not only the tournament of missed penalties, it's the tournament of own goals as well. And this might be the most bizarre of them all. That is a nightmare moment for the Newcastle United goalkeeper, Martin Dubravka. 
Well, lest the Slovakia goalie feel bad, there's been other really terrible moments like this one as well. If the arm was outstretched, I could understand the appeals and, of course, the, a review and even a penalty being given, but certainly not for me. Of course, we have Mark Plattenberg on duty. We'll be calling upon Mark. Oh! What has just happened? What a nerve! Has just occurred. The Croatian players because really you're not meant to see that sort of thing in a major tournament unable to field it it's a slip up that you certainly don't see every day an oops moment and then some Croatia in front scarcely believable and I say scarcely Derek because we have seen it before haven't we not for a long time at this level as you said just pure lack of concentration. Unai Simon, he knows the game. He's run no point change. Yeah, my favorite part of that is the reaction of the Croatian fans when that happens. They just lose their minds. And why do I show you this? It's not because I want to find out how litigious uh, ESPN is, although I do want to find that out as well. Um, but it is because we can relate to these moments. And there's something that captures us about these moments when they happen, right? These oops in sports. I think about even like in football games where the players drop the ball right before the end zone or when NBA players make bizarre plays or when athletes fail at the top level. And these things get aggregated and they get played over and over and over again. And I've, I was thinking about this week, why are those things the things that stand out? Why do we like to play these over and over again? Why can't we look away from these moments? And I think it's because we can relate to these moments. It's not because we relate to them in the sense that we've uh, messed up in front of thousands of fans and millions of people watching on TV, but because we know that discomfort. In fact, some of you, as you were watching that clip, you might have started wriggling in your seats and kind of cringing a little bit as you watched it happen. Because we all know the deep feeling of shame that comes with failure. We know the feeling of the Spain goalkeeper as he grabs his knees after he knows he's made the mistake. And maybe it's the shame of a failed social interaction or the shame of a memory where you made a fool of yourself at school or at work. Or maybe it's some lived memory of shame, something that's deeply ingrained in your soul subconsciously, something that haunts you over time. Because shame is something that all of us experience, whether we know it or not. Recently, there's been a lot of studies about shame and how early on we can perceive shame. And they found that we have our first experience of shame somewhere between 15 and 18 months old. And it's actually before we can cognitively uh, express the feelings of shame, but it's when we start to notice the stories that are being told about us. And researchers can actually tell the level of embarrassment and shame that is felt in a toddler based not on what they have to say, because many times they can't speak, but because of their facial expressions and posture when it happens. Because no matter how young or old you are, shame causes us this posture of turning away from something, turning towards ourselves and turning away from relationship. Because shame is a visceral response, not just an internal one. It's one that can actually be seen in our bodies as well. 
I know this from my earliest memory of shame. When I was in grade school, I went to church in Roswell with my family. And it was a really small church, and it was the type of church where they took prayer requests at the end of service, and everyone just raised their hand in the service, and then they prayed for that, per- and then they prayed for that person. And me being in grade school, <coughs> I was looking out the window, not really paying attention. But somebody then said, I want to pray for my granddaughter in Albuquerque. And me, not being someone that's got a small mouth, but a big mouth, and hearing the word Albuquerque, immediately just shouted out, hey, I'm from Albuquerque. To which everybody in the service started laughing. And now it was a good-natured laugh. They thought it was probably cute that this chubby grade school kid was talking out. But to me, I remember in that moment feeling like everyone was laughing at me and kind of shrinking into a ball and walking out of the service. I remember the pastor reaching out to shake my hand and kind of reaching up and not looking at him to shake his hand. And that memory still rings in my head fairly often. And it was an early, and it was an early memory, too, of church even being a place of shame, which I'm guessing that some of you in here have felt as well. And what do we do when shame is so powerful and so visceral, something that causes us to turn away from others in relationship? And how do we deal with shame? Well, today we want to look at what happens when Jesus examines how we judge compared to God's view of us. And what we'll see is that while shame causes us to turn from others in insecurity, God, our good Father, invites us to turn towards Him in relationship. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 7, 1 through 12, or if you have your smartphone or whatever you're using. And one quick thing, there's a couple of spots in here we're going to have to jump over because there's, this could be two or three sermons in and of itself. So I'd encourage you to go back and to meditate and think through these passages as well this week. But if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been going through a series called Emotional Intelligence. And we've been looking at how the gospel is good news even as we struggle with emotional and mental health and how the gospel meets us in those places. And during this series, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is the ethical manifesto of the kingdom, calling the people of God to live differently. In a world marked by anger and retaliation, Jesus calls us to be people of peace and reconciliation. And in a world marked by anxiety, he invites us to trust in the the provision of God. And Jesus calls people to build their life on his work and wisdom, not on the wisdom of the world. And it's with all of these things ringing in our ears that we come to one of the final exhortations in the Sermon on the Mount. And here, Jesus wants to reframe and clarify a key piece of the sermon. How do we live out this kingdom ethic in relationship? This is what he says, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus opens by telling the people, judge not. And he actually goes on to repeat this word in a variety of ways five times in those opening two sentences. And now this word in the Bible actually can be defined a variety of ways. In fact, the chapter before, it's defined as a a positive light, a value judgment, a discerning judgment, to judge the world around you with the lens of the gospel. But here, a different story of judgment is being told. 
The word here defined is actually to condemn, to belittle, to avenge. It's a negative type of judgment. One that looks down on a person with a superior attitude and putting them down without loving concern. It's to shame them, to put them in their place. Opposite of discerning. And Jesus warns them that the ways that you judge others, the way that you condemn, the way that you shame and belittle, that standard will be held to you. He actually uses the word measure there, which is an ancient, was the way of evaluating market fairness. In fact, you would go to the market and people would be wearing measures around their neck. And they would go, when you said, I want grain, they would reach in and they would grab a scoop of grain, a measure of grain. And that's why you see this example throughout the Bible, because some people had a fair measure of grain, a generous measure, and others had skimpy measures. They gave poor portions and overcharged. And see, what Jesus is pointing out is that everyone measures, but how you judge actually matters, both to you and to others, because a stingy measure of judgment towards others will lead to a stingy measure by God to you. It's a pretty dire warning. And instead of this, dis, this condemning judgment, the call is actually to be discerning in how you measure yourself and others. Look what it says moving forward in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, out of your eye? When there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus here gives this really ridiculous example. He says, you see the speck in your brother's eye. That word speck actually means like a piece of sawdust or a little splinter in someone's eye. It's something that you'd have to look really, really close to see maybe even needing some kind of instrument to see what's going on in their eye. And uh, this is important to note, though. That doesn't mean that it's not serious. If you've ever had something in your eye, you know how painful it can be. It doesn't mean that that speck is not something that's festering, that's important to pay attention to. But what he then goes to point out is he says, you notice the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log sticking out of your own. That word log actually means support beam of a building. It's something that, uh, some massive piece of lumber sticking out of your eye. In fact, think of it this way. It would be like the shine pole right here in the middle of our space sticking out of someone's eye. And now you can understand where Jesus is coming from, right? Like if I went to Jared and I said, Jared, you've got a speck in your eye, but I've got one of those sticking out of my eye, he's going to be a little skeptical about my judgment. He's going to wonder where my perception is coming from. In fact, uh, theologian Leon Morris observes this. He says, Jesus is drawing attention to a curious feature of the human race in which a profound ignorance of oneself is so often combined with an arrogant presumption of knowledge about others, especially about their faults. Or to put it another way, we recognize the guilt and shame of others but we don't recognize our own. And this is why Jesus says, you hypocrite. That word is actually the same word that the people who were judging 
would use to describe those below them. Jesus tells his disciples that it's not until they've dealt with the speck in their own eye, that they, or the log in their own eye, that they can help the brother with the speck. And it's important to note that he doesn't say don't help the brother with the speck. Because it doesn't ignore the speck in the brother's eye, but rather it realizes that once we've dealt with our own sin and brokenness, once we've dealt with the, our own issues, when we've come into relationship with God and wrestled with those things, then we can gently and lovingly help our siblings. If you've ever had an injury, you know this. If you've ever hurt a bone in your, if you've ever hurt, had knee surgery and then you come across someone else that has knee surgery, you have compassion for those people. Or if you've ever had some kind of injury or gone through some difficulty, you understand that difficulty in someone else and it gives you a perspective of loving kindness and care. See, sin isn't meant to be left festering in the eye, but rather with the loving perspective of brothers and sisters who have been there before, it's meant to be dealt with. And rather than judge, Jesus gives us actually a different path of dealing with human shame and judgment. And that's trusting in God's gracious gifts. This is what it says starting in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone asks, receives, and everyone who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, God's ways are contrary to our judgmental ways. When faced with judgment, the cure is not to run and hide, but to rather to turn towards relationship and engage with God. See, Jesus points out for all who come to God, they will find what they're looking for. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. And here again, he picks up on the idea of prayer that he picked up earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, saying that God will answer those who come to him. And it's important to note, though, this isn't like this idea that if you bug God enough, that he'll answer your prayers but rather it's an invitation to relationship and trust. See, relational goodness is something that we can even comprehend. Jesus lays out two examples here of how ridiculous it would be to give bad gifts to your kids. In the ancient world, stones, the stones that he's talking about are probably like river stones, and they actually looked similar to what a loaf of bread would look like. And he's saying, how, how many of you would pull a practical joke on your kid and give them a rock instead of the loaf of bread they're asking for. But then he gives an even nastier example with the snake, because the fish that was caught in the Galilean region was this eel-like catfish that looked a little bit like a snake. And he's saying, how many of you, when your kid asks for a fish, you'd give them that fish, and instead you maybe give them a live snake that can hurt them? In Luke, he gives a third example of a scorpion. Scorpions in that region, when they curl up, they look a little bit like an egg. And he said, how many of you, when your kid asked for an egg, would give them a scorpion? What's interesting, right, is these are three examples that for all of us feel really nasty. And Jesus is saying, you know better than that. You know better than to do something that cruel to your kids. 
So if that's the case, how much better, you who are evil, how much better is g- are God's gifts? There's a couple of things that's important to note about the status of humanity that Jesus points out. The first is that we're broken, evil because of the fall. Jesus doesn't mince words here. He just kind of lays it out. We'll come back to that. I promise that's not the end of it. Because note this. It also points that even as we're evil, notice that the good gifts follow that proclamation. That God still gives good gifts to all who come to him. And it doesn't mean that God's going to give you uh, more money or that he'll give you that sweet car that you've been praying for. That, like if you come to him with like desperation prayers about that Ferrari or that McLaren that I drove past yesterday, God's not going to give you that. That's not what he's talking about here, but rather it's the trust that his will be done, as the Lord's Prayer says, that we can trust in the good will of God in our lives. And the cool thing is that turning towards God actually causes a reaction in our lives as well, that it doesn't just cause us to turn towards God, but it actually causes us to turn towards others out of this relational security. This is how he ends the passage in verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He gives them the golden rule. Jesus closes this section with this call to action. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this would have been totally different than the maxims that existed in society because most of them lived by what was called the silver rule. Rabbi Hillel, who was a great teacher and leader of the Jewish tradition, taught that you should not do to others what you do not want them to do to the, or you should not do to others what they do not want done to themselves. Because the inverse was common in society. If you don't want to be robbed, don't steal. If you don't want to be beat up, don't cause fights. It's a selfish motto, one that looked out for yourself over the needs of others. But here, Jesus calls us to a different standard, to love rather than judge, to care for your neighbor, to elevate rather than to tear down. Or as Tim Keller puts it, that our happiness is wrapped up in the happiness and joy of others. It's a selfless way one that lays down self for the sake of another. And this final call sounds good in theory, but it's a much harder reality. Because it's nice to think that loving others is a way that changes the world, that when we selflessly care for people in the ways that we hope to be cared for and not expecting return, that things start to transform in society. But if we're being honest, laying down self is really hard, particularly in our current world, because we live in a world of measure. We live in a world of measures. Because, see, we live in a world where people are constantly measuring us compared to some standard. A world where people are constantly looking to define us in one way or another, where we're defined by how hard we work or how talented we are, the potential we carry, how successful we've been, the clothes we wear. We could go on and on and on and on of the things that we're judged by. And we look upon those who have been self-made or accomplished or uh, have enough followers as, as people to be emulated. And while looking... And while we look at those who have unsuccess and unsuccessful lives with judgment and disdain, even now, as we're sitting here, just take a brief thought exercise with me. 
Think about your heroes and why you love them. Because is it because they're meek and mild or because they've been world conquerors? But merit-based society may not be as positive as we once thought. See, in a world of meritocracy, a world where you're defined by what you do, is leading more and more to a world of frustration and shame. In fact, in his book, The Tyranny of Merit, the author Michael Sandel argues that the rhetoric of rising, supposedly a message of hope and optimism, turns out to foster frustration and resentment, creating a patchwork of winners and losers that divides rather than unites us. See, in a world of measures, meritocracy and merit aren't levelers, but actually a grand portrayal because they cause us to judge one another. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard. This isn't the point of this message is we should just all be slackers and not judge each other anymore. But, but think about it this way. How, think about how you viewed the last year of COVID. I've had numerous conversations with people where they've looked at the last year and they've tried to like, look at what they've done with their COVID time and ask questions about it and comparing themselves to other people. How many books did you read? Or did you write that book that you always wanted to write? Did you travel anywhere? Did you learn a new hobby? What did you do with your time? And while these are questions of honest curiosity, if we're not careful, these questions that we start to ask can begin to breed discontent and shame and become another way of measuring oh, that person learned how to do this, but I didn't. And because it's not just a world of measures we encounter and move on from, it's actually that these world, this world of measures actually causes us to feel failure at our own inadequacy because our world of measures also leads to shame. I don't know if you were reading the news this week with the Olympics, but there was a big moment this week where Shikari Richardson, one of the best sprinters in the world, was disqualified from the Olympics for using recreational drugs. And it was a huge deal because a lot of the hopes of the American track and field for the women was placed upon her shoulders. And what was interesting about it was at the day after she was disqualified from the Olympics for using recreational drugs, she appeared on NBC's Today Show and said this, don't judge me because I'm human. I'm just like you, I just run a little faster. And what was interesting about this was two parts for me. One is that she recognized immediately that we're judging her. In fact, I'm sure as soon as I said the words recreational drugs, people in here started having thoughts about what type of person she is or what that means. But the second thing that's really interesting is she felt shame in being caught in her failure. That plea, don't judge me, because there's a recognition of her own shame at her actions. Because when we don't measure up, we feel pressure and pain. And we know the accompanying shame far too well of not being good enough. Maybe it's the test you failed and you can't shake, or the lie that you told that haunts you, or the thing that you looked on your computer screen that no one knows about, or even the disapproving glance of a parent that makes you feel like you haven't measured up. And those things can linger with us for years. I was thinking about this this week in light of high school basketball for me. When I was in high school, I had a pretty, my team had a pretty successful high school career. We get won two state championships. Um, we were nationally ranked my senior year. And I was thinking back because 
I vaguely remember the national or the uh, state championship games. And we in one of those games we played in a sell in front of a sellout crowd at the pit. And I kind of remember that game. But what I do remember is my last high school game that I ever played. In fact, actually, that's why kids in here, you may see that you have a basketball in your bag because it reminded me of this moment. My senior year, I was on my last club game ever, and we were playing in this big gym that had multiple courts. I think it had 10 courts in it. And so there's games being played at all of these courts. And I'd made a mistake right at the end of the game to tie the game to start with. And, or no, it's just tie the game. We had gone up by one right then. I had made a mistake. I was like, okay, good, fine. As long as I don't make another mistake, we're fine. So my coach puts me in to throw the ball in at the opposite end of the court. And he said, Christian, whatever you do, just don't turn the ball over. I say, got it. He said, if you need to do anything, we don't have any timeouts, just throw it as far down the court as you can. I said, I got it. I can do that. So the play breaks down. I grab the ball, and I just throw it as hard as I can to the other end of the court. To which promptly, one of the other players on the other team grabs the ball, takes two dribbles, pulls up, and hits a shot for them to win the game. And I did what the Spain goalkeeper did. I just grabbed my knees. I looked down at the ground. We'd been knocked out of the tournament. It was my last high school game ever. To which my very compassionate club coach came up to me. And he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Christian, I would have rather you punted the ball into that court right there than do what you just did. And then he walked away from me. (laughs) And that moment I think about all the time. That's one of those ones that lingers with me. I can't remember my two biggest successes in sports, but I can remember that moment of failure because I didn't measure up in that moment. And in a world of measures, it just leads us to these places of shame. And it's interesting to note because our measure is given in this passage. Jesus calls those who are listening evil. And it's a discouraging word that out of context can bring up all of those old feelings of shame and guilt. All of those old feelings of walking into a church building and wondering if you measure up. And it'd be easy for us to hear these words and turn away. To realize that we don't measure up to God's holy ways. To recognize our own culpability in the sin and shame in our lives and in others. But here's where the good news of the gospel invites us to something different. Because the way of Jesus invites us to turn towards God in relationship. See, while shame can cause us to turn from others in insecurity, God invites us to turn towards him in relationship. And the realization is not that we're evil, but that God loves us despite our sinful brokenness. It says that God gives good gifts to his kids. Grander gifts than any parent could ever give their child, both now and in eternity. And, we, and that God knows what we need far more than we do. And we can pray trusting the good Father. See, while we live in a world that defines us by labels and little t-truths, The gospel defines us by Christ and gives us the title of sons and daughters. And notice something here, that God does this despite our evil and brokenness. 
For all who follow Jesus, the gift of life with him is given, not because of who you are or your ability, but because of what God has done. And this matters because the Sermon on the Mount so far has laid out our brokenness. See, the Sermon on the Mount as a manifesto highlights all the areas that we think that we're doing okay and calls us to a higher standard while also revealing our own impurity. You may not be a murderer, but if you've been angry with someone, you've murdered them in your heart. And you may not be a thief, but if you've ever coveted something, then you might as well have stolen it. And you may see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but be careful to not ignore the support beam in your own. Yet, all, despite all of this, our failures and frustrations, it ends with this picture of God giving good gifts to his kids. See, God has invited us into relationship with him, and out of that, a new story. Not the story of evil and brokenness, but that we're sinners saved by grace. And that he calls us his kids, and that he loves you enough to give good gifts. To reframe of the story of shame into a story of hope. And it's not just the story that we tell ourselves, but also the story that we proclaim to others. See, what's the question is, what is the story that you're telling? Is it the story of shame, or is it the story of who we are in Jesus? Because in in the way of Jesus, we're invited to proclaim the way of love over the way of shame in both speech and life. We're invited to share the good news of the gospel with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, with both how we live and speak. And this invitation is to share love over shame with all you interact with, which is immediately applicable here in a family service, because we're sitting with our closest neighbors. Parents, this means loving your kids, even when they don't deserve it. And kids, that means honoring your parents, rather than putting them down when you disagree. And as a community, as a family community here, it means extending the grace of God to all those around us. See, with Jesus, we can now proclaim the story of grace, not the tyranny of merit over one another. And it's this counter to shame that invites us to follow our rabbi Jesus. Because while shame causes us to turn from others in insecurity, God invites us to turn towards him in relationship. So the question might be for us here today, what's the story that you'll tell? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you that despite the ways that we fail, you have not defined us by our failures. You have not defined us by anything besides you. That when you look on us, you see sons and daughters, you see your beloved. And Lord, I pray that today for those in here, that may not be feeling that way, whether they know you or not, God, that you would reach in and touch their lives and remind them of who they are. Jesus, thank you that no longer is the way the way of shame, but the way of goodness and grace. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we go out from this place, that you would help us to proclaim God's love to one another and live a new story rather than the story of merit. Thank you for all of your good and your lovely and your gracious gifts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.